Welcome, welcome, welcome to Nodes in the Net, a weekly, tangential, irreverent conversation that was once between two millennial spiritual dilettantes, but that has expanded to a wide range of liminal trickster mystics. Today's guest is Oklahoma City Steve. Steve is a former Oklahoma City mayoral candidate. Uh, which is a very interesting first for the show. We've got someone who's very deeply embedded in local politics, and we talk about that a lot on today's episode. Uh, He's also a very service-oriented person and just an all-around joy of a human. Uh, We also discuss the origin of his Discord handle, Super Bowl Steve, Uh, And I won't spoil anything for you, but it is uh, mildly hilarious. (laughs) Uh, So before we get into that, you can find links to contact me at creekmasons.com if you have any feedback, guest suggestions, ideas for the show, uh, book recommendations, whatever you've got, send them over to me. Uh, That link to email me is at creekmasons.com. You can also find some of my writing there about media metaphysics and metamodernism. And you can also uh, contact me via Twitter at creekmasons or at nodes in the net or on TikTok where I'm at creekmasons. So all that out of the way, let's get moving into this great conversation with Super Bowl Steve. Here it is. So there's, um, when you asked me to, to do this, I was trying to think of what we should talk about because I have so many things going on and as a certain type of person, I'm just constantly engaging in so many things. But I do think that the local politics thing is probably the most important of the many numerous things I do in my life. So definitely excited about talking about that. Um, Oklahoma City is kind of, as I see it, the final comeback city in America before, you know, things get really serious. And it's created a lot of incredible stories and dynamics. And, you know, as Chuck D says, what does it mean? All this shit I'm seeing and I'm loving it and hating it. And this <laughs> library is really, really beautiful, really great, really wonderful, but should have been here 30 years ago. So right. It's like right. we're doing everything right now that we should have done so long ago. And you know, I, I'm pretty sure it's too late, but, um, yeah, I'm going to keep doing what so I do. So you're, you're, um, you're doing what you do, which implies a certain amount of hope and optimism. Uh, like something's got to be fueling the fire. Uh, but in a lot of the videos that you, uh, that I've been able to find, it's been, um, you know, it's interesting you described Oklahoma City as like a comeback city because that makes me think of, uh, new investments coming in and uh, people sort of um, adapting to the more modern economy, right? Yeah, it's just, it's kind of a good way of uh, saying the infinite growth machine has found its final victim, you know, yeah. because um, yeah. this is, just, it's basically, as Chris Hedges says about these kind of things, it's replicating the patterns of other failed municipalities. And it's just like, you see it so clearly that um, we're doing exactly what all the cities that we belittle who aren't doing well started out at. You know, they had this moment when all of a sudden they have these new restaurants right. and libraries and all this stuff and, you know, the greatest utopia ever. And then time passes and it doesn't work out. And, um, yeah, for myself and the, the groups that I associate here, it's been really strange to see, you know, what, what is happening. Um, I won't, I'll get into the mayor here later. Uh, my online identity for the past year has pretty much centered on this strange neoliberal hero, basically 
2020 version of Bill Clinton, mm. uh, who uh, is just just a fascinating, awful, vit, uh, sinister human being um, <laughs> that's kind of running the whole operation. And um, God, the stories I'm going to be able to tell one day, and the stories I have to tell now are, are just astonishing. And I'm kind of accepting my fate as the poor guy who has to document it all. And, um, you know, I'm going to reluctantly uh plow forward yeah what i'm doing so okay so comeback city is uh i guess not a positive <laughs> way to describe no, it no not at all yeah not not, not for me yeah. for uh the chamber of some types of commerce as i like to call them that's the you know it's the greatest thing ever it's yeah like you know comeback yeah. city, because it's it plays right into their hand of you know contracts and kickbacks and all that stuff. And uh, it's, uh, it's uh, why do we do this? Right. It's so sad. But one thing that you said earlier was also that a lot of the things that you're doing now should have been done uh, 30 years ago. So is there some, like, is there some bright side going on or is it... Uh, is it all doom and gloom? Because <laughs> that's that's one of my main things, one of my main resistances personally to getting involved at the local level. Um, like I've I've knocked doors for Bernie Sanders and and things like that. I've made calls. I've done the text banking, but um, you know I guess I'm one of those like stereotypical progressives or. Uh, I would say probably even further left into the anarchist territory who uh, gets sort of excited for, you know, the federal stuff every four years and kind of like fades into the background the rest of the time. And so part of my resistance to like politics in general in the last, you know, two years has been that it just sort of feels like laying down in front of a freight train that like you know maybe maybe my body clogs up the gears for a minute but uh the gears are gonna keep wine wine whirring <laughs> you know what i mean i don't know I, what do you think about that well i think it's true i don't know why what it is but the uh kind of stereotypical liberal progressive clinton loving person is not very engaged in local politics, and I don't understand it. Um, we have a lot of, uh, you know, obviously in Oklahoma, the reddest state in the world, um, we've got a lot of uh, very involved right-wing figures, and I see them getting involved in local politics a lot more as of late, which I don't, I don't, I don't understand it. You know, I don't know yeah. why, but yeah. getting involved in local politics is the most important thing, in my opinion, because, A, obviously... You, you have a voice, um, you know, it's, it's right there in front of you. It's what you're most familiar with. Um, the dynamics are so different from federal, you know, because like you can go to your city council and pretty much every city council has citizen presentation at the end. You sign up and you can talk about anything you want. And I have always absolutely loved citizen presentations and you know, just kind of that the dynamic of it of it's kind of seen as you know the the guy in the wool stocking cap in the park screaming about socialism as he shows up, <laughs> not someone yeah. with like a cohesive argument as to why we should do this or that. And I think it's pretty, uh, you know, it's almost intentional that uh, it's a space for those types of people because it's it's really a good way. You know, you, you go, you speak. And it's always uh, videotaped, so you can go on and scrape the video and upload it to every platform. Mm. And, um, yeah, it's, it's an amazing thing. Um, you know, I, I remember a friend of mine from uh, Turkey uh, that I met at Oklahoma State. You know, I, I, was, I took him to city council with me once and was just, like, amazed at the, the tools that we have at our disposal, you know, here. And what could be the freest country in the world, you know, is not really a lot of it has to do with us refusing to uh, step up and enjoy some of those things. So, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, nothing I can recommend more than getting involved yeah. in local politics. I mean, well, that sounds interesting. I, I definitely enjoy hearing the sound of my own voice. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and another thing with it is, you know, we're, we're really in a moment here and we need to... Uh, Find as many allies as we can, and that's where you find allies. Are work like um, we talked about how the latest thing that we've been fighting is a new jail here in Oklahoma City. 
Um, our jail is uh, yeah. known <laughs> to be one of the worst, one of the worst in America, and no one imprisons more women in the world than Oklahoma. Wow. Um, and the jail that's downtown was built 30 years ago. It was uh, a contract given to a friend of someone at the chamber had never built a jail before. So the place is completely falling apart. Um, more people have died this year in this prison than in Rikers, which, you know, a place that has, you know, significantly more yeah. popu prison population. Yeah. But our prison is 13 floors. Uh, most of the time there's like eight people monitoring those floors. The elevators what? don't work. The infirmary, the infirmary is on the top floor. It's just devastating. That's insane. So what? That's insane. So what happened is Clay Bennett, the owner of the Thunder, um, he married into the Gaylord family, who's the big uh, media company, you know, vampire family okay. here in Oklahoma okay. that does the paper. The lizard people. And then, uh, yeah, and then the Chamber of Commerce was uh, running it, and it became very apparent that this is a extreme example of disaster capitalism, you yeah. know, because they understand that there's a very serious need. There's a lot of people dying. They're right. We need a new jail. But what they did is they said, we want to create a $260 million bond, uh, 30 years at 10%, which will be about a billion dollars by the time 30 years is up. And, you know, it's going to be a larger jail. And of course, they're talking mental health because yeah. that's the new trend. Yeah. You know, they know they can pull at your heartstrings by we're going to build a mental health facility. You know, and I, a lot of things. So they're they're um, they're pitching a jail as a mental health facility. Yeah, a, a, a jail with mental health facilities inside of it. Um, it's something that was done in Tulsa. You know, our neighbor. Uh, built a new jail with a mental health facility, and it and it went horribly because they they didn't have the staffing for it. And it was basically just they put you in another cell and label it mental health, and you know maybe give you a mm. a book to read or something. But that's it's, uh, that's horrifying. That's, I mean, so so what happened last? Yeah. what happened last yeah. night is it passed with fifty eight percent, but we're seeing it as we have forty thousand new allies on our cause. You know, the people that voted no. And what's happening is we have a couple candidates for a commissioner who will, if we get them in, you know, our pretty left-leaning friends, they'll be able to dictate how that money is spent and all that. So, um, you know, we lost this battle, but it's not over yet. Right, so. right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's the attitude you've got to take, I suppose. But is is Oklahoma City, I like, I'm terrible with... Uh, you know, like geography generally, to be honest. But is Oklahoma City um, sort of following the pattern of a city that's sort of more on the blue side that's surrounded by, like, deeply red rural areas? Or is, I mean... Yeah, yeah, kind of. And it's not good because it's really, like, MSNBC uh, liberal types. Yeah. Um, you know, every... Yeah. Our mayor, okay, let me tell you about our mayor because it kind of plays into this. Sure. Is he's, uh, he's kind of young, he's 41, um, 22 years in politics. His first job was, uh, he was the assistant for Dennis Hassert at, uh, in DC when he was speaker, you know, the convicted pedophile Dennis Hassert. And then he went to work for a guy named Jim Inhofe and then a woman by the name of Mary Fallon. Basically, he's worked for all these horrifying right-wing monsters um, to develop his career. And now he, all of a sudden, as a, a brilliant politician, sees the direction that the city's going, is talking about all the, the liberal talking points, um, and everyone's kind of falling for it, you know, refusing to look at his gruesome political past. And um, so uh, a lot of uh, bad, the things that are associated with the bad things associated with liberals are, are flourishing here. So, yeah. so it's like, okay, um, uh, a lot of people think this is good, but we need to uh, watch it right. very carefully. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm hearing you, I'm hearing you use the, use a lot of like charged language, uh, which like to me, I've, I sort of maybe slightly bulk at describing human beings as monsters like maybe maybe I'm sort of in the camp where uh, 
there's probably one to 5% of people who are psychopaths. I think that's the statistic I've read. And maybe those people can't be rehabilitated or whatever. Um, but sort of the, the attitude that I like to take is that evil is kind of a myth. And viewing the other as, uh, as an evil entity that, that can't be redeemed is, as, you know, maybe something that's like, it implies an essential nature, like a, a, an original sinned, <laughs> you know, soul that, uh, that can't be communicated with. And in, in my, you know, formulation, it sort of feels like the direction that America is heading is a civil war of like rural versus urban. And I, in my opinion, the only way to prevent that has to be uh, communication between us and the other. And, and yeah, I mean, like I've heard Sam Harris say this, who I'm not like the biggest fan of Sam Harris. I think that he like sort of exemplifies some of the problems with neoliberalism that you're describing. But uh, I think he made a good point when he said on Russell Brand's podcast that humans only have two ways of resolving conflict, and it's communication and violence. And, uh, you know, like, where, what, what path does describing people as monsters take us down? You know, not to call you out too aggressively or whatever, but I, I'm curious to hear what you think. I welcome uh, that kind of thing a lot. As I uh, get older, I'm realizing that it's good to listen to people when they have, you know, like, hey, you might want to tone that down or tone this down or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, uh, and on the other hand, uh, there can be vigorous disagreement with the poli policy decisions and... Uh, you know, like, obviously, pitching a, a jail as a mental health facility. I, so I'm, I'm personally, I'm diagnosed bipolar. And I think that that's, that's something that comes up on the podcast a lot is, like, my, um, I guess you could say struggle, but it's more of a, a relationship that's, you know, maybe a little tense uh, between me and society in general and, and sort of that, like, desire to adapt to a profoundly sick society uh, that sometimes I'm, I'm, you know, my, my desire <laughs> of that, like, sort of ebbs and flows. Uh, and really what, what you're talking about when you're talking about uh, mental health, like, arresting mentally ill people and, like, segregating them from society is destroying the lives of people who just aren't, you know, aren't set up neurologically or emotionally or whatever to be productive cogs in a fucking murder machine. Do you know what I mean? And, and so it like, I, I, I definitely think that like I'm drawn. And one of the things that I really wanted to ask you is for like, practical advice to not only uh, get involved in these kinds of conversations, like, you know, how do I start? But also, how do I, like you mentioned, 40,000 new allies, how do I connect with other people who are, you know, like, particularly for me, I don't know if you have any experience with this, but I've been hearing the buzzwords mutual aid everywhere. And that's the kind of thing that, like, really turns me on. So I wonder, like, I guess those are my two questions. Um, you know, what are the, what's the practical advice for getting involved and for finding allies? I think um, one thing about Oklahoma City is it's a very friendly place, you know, in a lot of ways. The people are awesome here. When I, uh, back in 20, uh, 2008, uh, when the Thunder basketball team was, Coming to town, we uh, fought the the big corporate uh, request for 125 million dollars to give to the team taxpayer money. Um, it's now 600 million, by the way. Um, started uh, really organizing and getting people together, and um, made some incredible allies through things. And then I moved to Seattle uh, three years later, you know, because I got to know a lot of people in Seattle, and I was just shocked at how different the people were out there compared to Oklahoma. 
Um, but what I, the way that I've uh, met people over the years uh, is kind of like you, you, you go to city council and there's something, there's a certain issue, and there's always people there who are uh, interested in whatever it is and um, always make it a point to introduce myself to everyone there. You know, say, hey, what, what, what are you thinking about this? Um, and, you know, and then, like, obviously a lot of people are meeting uh, allies online now, you know. So whenever you have uh, something you're interested in, you know, find a group that's fighting for it, and then you meet people there. And But it's, you know, this this time we're in, it's so hard to get people together, you know. Yeah. And, but it's, yeah. it's something that you have to do. Like, last night we met up at a, a local restaurant owned by our friend who's running for county commissioner. Expected to have about 40 people there and about 12 showed up, but it was yeah. still wonderful, wonderful being there with everybody. And we spent about five hours talking about, you know, what are we going to do next? Um, what did we maybe do wrong in this? But you just, you got to, once you have allies, you got to meet up, you know, and, and talk about things because it's just, it's just not happening, this online stuff that we're doing, you know. It's yeah. just, you know, there's little yeah. pockets of getting stuff done. But actually meeting up with the allies that you've met is, is incredibly important. Yeah. You know, and yeah. Yeah. the way Rushkoff yeah. describes it about, you know, watching your pupils dilate and whatever. Right. And yeah. Your breathing and all that. Yeah. I was, pretty, pretty I, I was just going to go there. There's a uh, Charles Eisenstein uh, short story. I, I would call it a short story. Um, at the end of his book, uh, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. And at the, at the, end or of the story uh he's sort of describing throughout the this the mission that we have to sort of like lift the world's vibrations i guess or or to um you know like heal the the epigenetic trauma that we've experienced as a species over the last several thousand years and sort of shift us into maybe like some sort of Aquarian singularity or something like that. And, uh, and at the end of the story, he's talking about how, like, in a lot of cases, you're going to meet your allies online. And it'll, it's been strange for me, you know, since I started getting involved in like the podcast space generally, like listening to Duncan Trussell and Douglas Rushkoff and Russell Brand and stuff. And, um, the uh the connections that i'm making are people like you like oklahoma city i live in california like my probably my best friend at this point is a dude i met on discord who lives in seattle um uh, is and other you know potential podcast guests are scattered to the four winds uh but what charles eisenstein uh pointed out and i think is like the thing that's um, really missing from my life, especially as I'm working from home. I mentioned I'll sometimes like do a shift at the library just so that I can be around <laughs> the smells and sounds that humans make. Um, but, uh, but I think that that's like a main thing that's missing is like communitas with people who, um, I guess whose whose like ideologies and values I vibe with. Um, it's great connecting with people online. I think we're both in the Team Human Discord, but like uh, that in person thing is. I guess uh, the advice is is pretty simple: like show up and shake hands, <laughs> right? Uh, I hang out at a. Cigar lounges occasionally. That's a wonderful place to meet people, uh, like totally out of your socioeconomic, uh, comfort zone. Um, Oklahoma City, for some reason, has like several wonderful places you can go and have a cigar and hang out and watch sports with, uh, people. And, um, but it's just, it's, it's sad how few spaces there are like that now. Yeah. Where you can just go and hang out. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I work at a, uh, airport here a uh, fbo fixed base operation we do charter flights and medical flights and we're uh, we just are about done with building a second hangar and a couple of the, the linemen there are big uh, electronic music guys and we were talking about you know everyone leaves the airport at 10 what if we did a rave here and, <laughs> and you know we, we kind of started talking about the incredible possibilities of that, but what I was getting at is, you know, Rushkoff talks about the the rave days a lot yeah. and how 
that when it started, it was about, you know, reclaiming spaces where you can just go and hang out and be around people. And, you know, I think in the 90s when the culture roots really flourishing was the big days of the, the shopping mall. And, you know, people are just tired of having to go to the mall to see people. You know? And yeah. so they started, uh, you know, kind of organically forming these wonderful little uh, subcultures. And, and um, yeah, so um, kind of kind of sad that we've gotten away from all that. But yeah. we're definitely yeah. right now uh, moving towards being forced to get back to that. It feels right. like, you know, just with everything that's happening. And that's another thing that kind of circles back to the importance of local politics. You know, it's like we're in a time where we really need to, have some close friends that we can rely on um, for for what's coming because it's pretty frightening to think yeah, about what's coming. Absolutely. Well, that's I mean that's one of the things that I've sort of secretly been hoping um, as people's commutes get shortened by you know telecommuting. Uh, does that leave for me already? It's been a huge benefit to my family life. I have more energy and time to spend with my daughter and wife, which I, I would not trade. It would be, you'd have to drag me kicking and screaming back into the office at this point. Um, but, uh, but I also wonder, like in the, I've read that in the 1950s, like two out of every three people belong to a social club of some kind, like a bowling league or the Freemasons or something like that. And, uh, and I wonder if this um, telecommuting presents an opportunity for us to start, you know, getting together again in, uh, you know, like non-coercive groups, you know, like you're sort of, you're sort of coerced into being friends with your coworkers. Um, not that that's, I mean, I have, I love my coworkers, but, <laughs> you know, that is sort of the nature of it. Um uh, and I also, I just want to point out that it's funny that you uh, mentioned cigar lounges, uh, because one of the things I was going to jokingly ask you was to uh, once and for all denounce flavored tobacco. Uh, <laughs> based on that, uh, that video you sent over of uh, the news picking up on your, what was it? Your, oh, the hookah, the hookah thing. The hookah yeah, thing. yeah. The hookah thing. I thought that. Yeah, so that was... Uh, 12 years ago, and this is one of, you know, I don't have like horrible regrets about my life, but 12 years ago, I ran for mayor in Oklahoma City, kind of a last minute deal because this was right after the uh, thunder had come to town and things were start of kind of starting to move on where we are now, you know, kicking Mm -hmm. all the black people out of the east side and taking over all those beautiful homes and um, pretty much everything that I predicted is happening, which, you know, big deal, you know. There's a lot more to uh, being right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. God, where was where was I going? I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was talking about when I ran for mayor, and um, you know, it was so close. It was so incredibly close. And they were the chamber, the powerful people in the city were trying to figure out how to how to stop me. And so they they found this old picture on MySpace of me smoking. Uh, hookah with this pretty girl at the local lounge, which ironically was named Isis, you know, it was before Isis became yeah. big. So it was like, you know, yeah. <laughs> luckily it hadn't, uh, they hadn't come to power yet or they'd say that I was hanging out with Isis. But, <laughs> you know, it's funny because this news story comes on and they show a picture of me smoking a hookah with this pretty girl and the, the news anchor is like, Steve Hunt may have been breaking the law. And I laid out, you know, the reality of it. And I had this huge jump in uh, in in the polls upwards, and so it was. It was yeah, they're like, "This guy's cool, awesome. <laughs> Look at him smoking that hookah with that pretty girl." And yeah. so I get a call a few days later from the head of the Fraternal Order of Police, uh, who had you know he was on our side, and he's like, "You know, uh, I just heard a rumor that the chamber has gone to all the TV stations saying no more interviews with this guy, or we're pulling all our ads." You know, and I was Whoa. like, "Oh, that's pretty awesome." Man. I got these got these guys that, scared yeah, a little bit. Yeah, that's a that's that's pretty cool. I uh on the YouTube video in the comments I was just kind of scrolling through and uh they were all like favorable. It, you know, it, like one guy's like tell me it actually was putt and then I'll definitely vote for him. <laughs> you know, like that's uh that's been the attitude uh I think 
increasingly, like we want, we want our representatives to be more representative of uh, the kinds of things that we're into, which actually does lead me to another question I had for you. Just like as someone who's maybe a little bit more involved in politics, a lot more involved in politics than I am, um, do you do you ever like kind of wonder? I mean, I don't know how much setup I need to do for this question, but do you ever kind of wonder whether it's a good idea for people to be like making decisions on behalf of, you know, whole communities when humans are driven so much by like emotions and intuitions and um, you know, and that's true on on both sides, I think. Uh a lot of our decisions are not come to out of like rational self-interest. That's that's a well-proven myth. Um, and so like, I wonder, I wonder what your thoughts are on, um, you know, democracy maybe being an impediment to the, um, maximization of like human joy (laughs) and maximum reduction of human suffering. Well, it could be a great thing if the playing field was level. Um, so this latest thing, we spent $900 and the chamber spent probably $2 million. Um, I was looking at the right. uh, FCC page. If you, go, if you go to the FCC page, this is something everyone should know about and should do. Go to the FCC page and then go to political filing. You can see um, all of the uh, paperwork on local political ads, and it's pretty fascinating to do. Um, so I went in and looked at all our local stations and saw the ads, and it was just like, oh, my God, this is going to be so hard because uh, they're, like, running probably hundred, like 500 ads a day on the three major channels and then on the radio stations and all that. So yeah. um, how, do you, how do you make that fair? I right. mean, you know, all of our, quote, unquote, local TV stations, uh, Channel 4 is owned by a company in Maryland, Channel 5's company in Texas, uh, 9 is kind of local, but, you know, and then the UHF, I don't know what they call them now, they're all owned by a Maryland company. So we don't have anyone really working on our behalf to tell the stories that need to be told to make sure people know what's going on, you know, what decisions, you know, what are, what are their choices you know it's just one side is told on the news because there's so much pressure on them not to talk about certain things and it's very bad you know i mean obviously i think that city councils are good um state representative is good um but it it takes a lot of work to make it uh function properly and it's definitely not something that people are doing now so i mean it's it's necessary but you know when it's <laughs> when it's not uh, when everyone's not pulling their part, it's it's a very bad thing. So you know, do we want to let people off the hook and get rid of all this stuff, or do we need to prod people into getting involved? I think that's what we need to do is get people involved, and then it can be a lot better because things aren't good right now, and that's on yeah. us. I think. Yeah, I hear you. It's I. So I forget who said this. Maybe it's another Eisenstein quote, but um, the sort of the logic of if everyone does their little part, our actions can be really meaningful, uh, can be reversed in such a painful way where you just like, as you're doing your little part, you look around and people are just easily persuaded and they're apathetic. And these like, there's really no rational reason that $2 million should be persuasive when it comes to such a, a blatant, you know, problem as like, uh, we're living in the country that uh, imprisons more people than any other in the world, and, and not like per capita, but just, you know, raw, raw numbers, you know, like, it, it really, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be something that you can overcome with money that people shouldn't live in cages. Uh, but, but people are persuadable. And uh, if you reverse that logic and everyone's not doing their little part, it, it's hard not to feel like your, your whole life is uh, meaningless. And maybe I'm like getting a little dramatic here, um, but that's, that's the kind of despair and, and depression that like really set in for me uh, after volunteering for uh, Bernie. And I, I wonder how you 
if you've ever felt that or if if you have if you combat it in some way um i was feeling pretty horrible this morning yeah it's like yeah i woke up and i'm like and it wasn't like i was you know because we didn't really lose so much because this is this is still a fight you know they have to uh formulate you know the committees and all that who's going to dictate which you know how the money's spent and all that and like i say we do have a opportunity to get a couple commissioners on there who are awesome and will do the right thing with the money um you know i just always look back to chris hedges and his incredible words you know he's kind of been my footprints in the sand the past couple years one that's kind of got me through all this you know little oklahoma uh religious talk there um you know he's like (laughs) I don't, I don't fight fascists because I think I'll win. I fight them because they're fascists. And, you know, in other times, yeah. like, uh, yeah. picking up a cross is not supposed to be a pleasant experience. You know, this is not supposed to be fun. And, you know, you get down and all that, but you just keep, keep at it, you know, cause, you know, I don't want, I don't want at the end of my life to look back and say, wow, I could have done this. I could have done that. I, I use my, my run for mayor, which I was like 1500 votes short of winning. Wow. You know, Oklahoma City, radical leftist commie, you know, would have been huge, you know, would have been huge. And, you know, like I'm talking with Noam Chomsky, you know, I'd met him nine years prior at MIT um, and we kind of hit it off because, you know, I worked downtown Oklahoma City during the bombing and right after 9-11, I'm like, ah, you know, the bombing really changed me. Maybe this can happen with other people. Um, But I'm kind of getting off on different things there, but I, I do use that moment as something to really make me keep going. You know, I, I, I could have done a lot more. And the way I ran my campaign was like, I'm going to run this kind of stealth campaign. So the four term guy I'm running against doesn't unlock, unleash his uh, war chest of money. And the reality is it's like, you know, what could be easier than running a, a stealth campaign? You just don't do as much as you would have done, you know, and, and, I, and I have regrets about that. Yeah. Cause, you know, it would have, it, it would have been a big deal had, had I won. And, and I mean, it was still pretty scary for them to see this idiot that is a FedEx driver, <laughs> you know, almost being, being the mayor of Oklahoma city and yeah. the billions of dollars that you have at, at your disposal to do stuff. I was going to do community Wi-Fi, and then I was going to, subsidize locally uh local companies to buy back the media and all that yeah i don't ever want to have to have that regret again yeah yeah well that's that's the teacher isn't it according to nietzsche is uh pain is the best mnemonic aid (laughs) uh i you know that's i've read a couple articles uh that were uh still on the internet from your mayoral run and the thing that really struck me was I, you were doing this before AOC, right? Yeah, th- that's what I thought. I'm bad with calendars, but it seemed like it had come way before. And I, I just kind of feel like uh, you were a little bit early on your, on your moment um, because like that sort of working man, you know, every man uh, uh, populism explosion has happened now and there are people like AOC and the squad and stuff like that. I don't follow any of that super closely, uh, but it does seem like our revolution is uh, making some kind of progress in electing more uh, genuine progressives. And I mean, like if you, if you really zoom out the, the reason that we're in this place, you know, teetering on the brink of fascism right now is because for 50 years, conservatives have been getting involved in local politics, right? And uh, and the think tanks and the you know the small moves that trickle up and eventually become Supreme Court decisions, um, which is I love the way Naomi Klein talks yeah. about uh, yeah. think tanks. She calls them paid to think by the makers of tanks, which oh, is wow. pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a quippy uh, a quippy phrase for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, it was just a couple of days ago. I, I was like, Oh my God, I totally forgot about Naomi Klein and shock doctrine, you know, with this jail thing, because like I said, it's one of the biggest examples of shock. Doctrine. Can you explain that a little bit? Cause I've heard that term, but I don't know what it refers to. So in, uh, 2006, I believe Naomi Klein came out with a book, shock doctrine, the rise of disaster capitalism. And it talks about, you know, starts off in Chile with Allende um, 
you know, the way that uh, Milton Friedman and all those people uh, started using their shock doctrine, uh, neoliberal uh, economic stuff uh, you know, in Chile as a playground, Allende. And um, over the years, you know, she talks about uh, Katrina, you know, how that moment became a time for developers to come in, for charter schools to come in. Just numerous instances of horrible things happening and big corporate interests coming in and making a lot of money off of that. And it's it's an absolute must read, I do believe. Uh, yeah. So the idea so is basically what this, the, what this. Yeah. Go ahead. The way the way the jail was like that is yeah. that they understand because uh, there's constantly stories about the jail, someone dying. You know, we we just a few months ago had a big national story with a guy by the name of Julius Jones. Um, he was on death row, and it was just a horrible. He had a horrible lawyer that you know didn't present all the evidence, and he was given the death sentence 22 years ago. Everyone that was involved was was pretty pretty bad, and um, you know so. He got off because, you know, they were about to execute him. And then a, a Rittenhouse moment happened where he was, you know, not not guilty. And the governor had to, you know, let Julius off uh, because the powder keg was very present. Mm-hmm. And uh, so. So, yeah, um, everyone's really keying in on this type of stuff here. And so the chamber saw it as a moment to get paid because they're like, people are going to totally go for this because they know that we need a new jail. They know that we need mental health. So we're going to get paid. You know, they presented it as it is very much, but didn't tell you that there's going to be a lot of money made off of this. So it's just, it's just sad. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's really disgusting how cynical, uh, that is. It's, it's really, um, I think the way that you're describing it is like, there's a crisis and, uh, like, what's the shock? What's the doctrine? The the crisis is is thrown in people's faces in order to shock them, and then, uh, you know, like money is made out of a solution that is probably good for no one. Yeah, the <laughs> right. the the famous Friedman quote is: "Only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are laying around." So, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, Friedman, yeah. you know, Friedman. Wow, that that dude. Not many people know much about him, but he's the reason for a lot of things right now. You know, with with I think Thatcher was the first one to really uh, take up Friedman's ideology, and then Reagan followed. Mm-hmm. You know, any any you know, I don't I don't really talk about federal politics, but anytime someone brings up Biden, I, I'm like, no, you mean a, a Reagan's eleventh term? That's basically <laughs> what it is. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, how long have we been going? We've been going about about 50, 50 minutes ish. Um, I have I have two things I want to do to close it out. Uh, okay. So normally I draw like a tarot card every episode and uh, kind of use that as like a mood to inspire, um, you know, some closing thoughts or you know sometimes it's the whole episode. I think today we'll just do it for some. Uh, some ideas for closing thoughts. And then, uh, let's do it. You know, let me, let me tell you though, like growing up in Oklahoma and being Baptist growing up and right wing that boy, that, that sure would have scared me years ago, but now let's do it. (laughs) Awesome. And also, uh, I did, I did, you know, in my Googling of you, uh, I think I landed on an explanation for your screen name on discord, Super Bowl Steve. And, I kind of, I kind of wondered if you would be willing to tell the Super Bowl story. That's my favorite story ever. I'll, of course, I'll tell it. <laughs> so let's let's start there, so, and then we'll close with the Terra. So, um, two thousand five, uh, I was living in Fort Worth, and my best buddy Robert, uh, we would go to City Council a lot because our friend uh, Wendy Davis was on the City Council. You may know her. Um, she's ran for governor in Texas. She had a big filibuster on uh, abortion like five or six years yeah. ago. And she gained. That does sound became it. So, so she, we were like drinking buddies. And she was telling us about how when she went to Harvard, she was roommates with Patty Kraft, whose dad owns the uh, Patriots. And we're like, okay, Wendy, hold on. Are you really that close with her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to a bunch of games. And so like, I'm like, Wendy, you got to take us if the Patriots make the Super Bowl. And she's like, okay. So she writes 
on a napkin. Um, Steve and Robert are coming to the Super Bowl if the Patriots make it. Okay, so flash fast forward <laughs> about four months later, Patriots are in the Super Bowl in Houston. Me, Robert, my good friend Corey, hop in the car, drive down. We're all dressed up because we're going to be in a box with uh, you know the owner of the Patriots. We get there. She's like, guys, I'm so sorry. It's full. We're not going to be able to get in. I just want to, and we cut her off. We're like, you know, we're, we're smart. We'll figure something out. <laughs> so we start like circling the stadium trying to find, you know, some vulnerable person working a gate or whatever and just walk in. And we see the MTV entertainment uh, booth, you know, all the people getting ready to uh, go on halftime and dance and sing and clap. And we see this kid kind of off in the corner and we go up to him and like, uh, we need to see your badge. And he shows his badge, take a picture, go to Kinko's, make our own badge. <laughs> we're in the Super Bowl. And um, so like as we're, as we're walking um, in and like literally walking onto the field and watching the game there, there's like Tom Arnold, Snoop Dogg, all these people. We're like cutting up with Snoop Dogg. And so we go and watch the game. It's amazing. It's fun. It's this incredible high being on the field at the Super Bowl. And then after we call up Wendy, say, hey, where's the Patriots party? Because they won the game. And so we go with our MTV badges and we're like, OK, how are we going to get in here? And I know it's just like, like a miracle, Kid Rock and Toby Keith show up. And so we walk behind them, and um, they go in, and then we're like, we're, we're with these guys. We've got MTV badges. And the dude's like, oh, heck yeah. What are y'all? We're like, we're making a documentary, but, you know. So we go in and uh, eat lobster. We're eating lobster, hanging out with all these celebrities, and it was hilarious. Oh, um, man. I love it. So, and then I, and it, it kind of gets some uh, attention on some, uh, weird little corners of the internet. Um, but the next year, we were like, let's do it again. That was fun. So we go down to Jacksonville and um, stay with an internet friend, a guy that I met on the out-of-the-park baseball uh, message board. It's like a macro-management intense sports simulation that is my number one escape. I love it. <laughs> um, so so, so we, we go to the game, and once again, we're like, okay, let's figure this out. We see this reporter take a picture of her uh, reporter badge back to Kinko's and um, we're in again. Um, <laughs> and this one was, this one was fun because we went into the press conference and I was pretty uh, gung ho crazy back then and would do just about anything. And I signed up to ask Bill Belichick a question. My question was, um, what do you think about potential Kurdish disenfranchisement in the Iraqi elections? <laughs> you know, Cause it was like, it was like right when the war in Iraq yeah. was going awful and you know, yeah. And I chickened out, and that's oh, that's my second regret. No, <laughs> not trying harder when I was mayor, and not asking him about that. But you know, um, so we get back, and we're sharing the story with our you know dumb friends on the internet, and somehow someone from Sports Illustrated found it, and it just blew up. We started getting calls from every you know talk show, Good Morning America, and all yeah. that. And the timing sucked because my my buddy. He's like newlywed, has a kid on the way, just bought a new condo, and his wife was like, "Guys, can you tone it down?" <laughs> so it just kind of, yeah, kind of didn't blow up. Yeah. But it's been a, it's been a really fun story. Um, the guy by the name of Carl Torp that did the story in Jacksonville, he is now a reporter in Oklahoma City, and I, uh, a whole another crazy story. I, I took the city to the Supreme Court a few years ago because the mayor, you know, changed the rules so I couldn't run. Totally illegal. I won't go into all the details, but. But I go, and there's freaking Carl Torp, and he's like, wait a minute, you're that Super Bowl guy. I'm like, wait a minute, you're the... And so they had sent him there to do my Supreme Court story, and it was awesome because he's like, you're like Forrest Gump. I'm running to you all over the place. And, um, yeah. But, and you know, and that, that moment has really uh, brought a lot of joy to many people's lives because it's kind of like, it's useful. You know, we're in a moment where a lot of right-wing people hate the NFL because they, they stand on their... They, they yeah. don't bow for the the thing right, and i'm right. like you know yeah that's why that's why we do that because we saw that coming and we just wanted to let them know that they can't you know so, <laughs> it's like so many so many different ways to play it and it's a uh, I, I highly recommend everyone you know sneaks in the super bowl once or twice in their life because it's fun <laughs> yeah yeah I, I love that i there's so much power in there's just so acting like you belong you know belong. oh yeah yeah, it's that's great. Awesome. I love it. Thank you for thank you for that's like more detail than I was able to get online. So I I love it. 
So if people just type Uberzine, U-B-E-R-Z-I-N-E in YouTube, uh, that's my friend's channel that got the uh, the recent telling of the uh, story. I don't know if you saw that video. There's like a five-minute uh, local news story about it. And, um, pretty, awesome. Pretty awesome. Yeah, I'll... Uh, I'll, I'll... Uh, put a link to that in the uh, in the metadata here. All right. So tarot wise, I just drew a card on uh, Discord on on the the server for this podcast, and we got a uh, seven of cups, uh, which is seven of cups, cups, cup like uh, drinking. <laughs> yeah. So the seven of cups is like, it's a person who's kind of fi- one of the rare cards where the person is facing away from, uh, the point of view and they're looking at a bunch of clouds that have, uh, seven golden cups on them, each with a different, uh, thing in it. Uh, you know, there's like a, maybe a, a ghost looking person in one and, uh, laurel crown uh in another um there's like a castle there's a a bust a dragon a snake and i guess what this card uh kind of represents is for me whenever it comes up it feels like um maybe a analysis paralysis uh sort of situation where you have so many good options in front of you it's it's sort of hard to pick one and uh, go forward with it, and so what I usually like to do, I I can I can look up more meanings for that if that doesn't inspire anything right off the bat, but uh, I usually like to like sit with it for a minute and then uh, you know do a, a closing riff. Anything for you? I'm sorry, <laughs> I got I got people coming trying to get into this room that I'm uh, using right now, and I my. I don't think I caught everything. Um, hold on one second. I'm going to talk to these people that are trying to get in this sure. room real quick, okay? Yeah. Sure. I, you know, I think that that's, that's like a perfect place to end. It encapsulates what I've admired about you throughout this entire conversation, which is like, uh, you know, an undying <laughs> spark of hope. You know, like even, even through the, uh, I think you're exactly right. The things that we have to deal with that are our most painful challenges are ammunition, you know, once we've gone through them to help others. And I think that uh, I really admire your, like, service-oriented mindset and your um, unwillingness, I guess, to give in to despair. I think that, I think that, that those are things that um, for sure make you a... A, a a beneficial node to have in the net, as it were. <laughs>